You're listening to TIP. For today's show, I invited back David Stein. David is a former chief investment strategist for Fund Evaluation Group, a $70 billion investment advisory firm. In this episode, David will break down what is going on with Evergrande and Alibaba and whether we as investors should be concerned about a stock market collapse. I hope you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. So sit back and enjoy the always thoughtful David Stein. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today I'm really happy to have invited you, David, back on the show to educate us on what is going on in China right now. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Stig. So, David, let's set the scene for this conversation. So, the Chinese equity market this year, especially tech stocks, have just tanked. And it might start to look cheap for a lot of investors, especially whenever we compare it to the S&P 500 that already looked somewhat expensive. And so far here in 2021, it's up another 20%. So. Let's try and zoom out for 2021 and say, is the Chinese stock market cheap historically? Well, first, before we do that, let's think about how Chinese stocks have performed. And when you talk about Chinese stocks, there's many different markets. There's the big tech stock that make up, you know, are some of the top 10 companies in the world, like Tencent or Alibaba. But we also have stocks like the A shares, which are just local companies that trade in China itself. Those are actually positive year to date of about 2.7%. The, you know, the China 50, the biggest names are down 17% year to date. So they've had the biggest fall. And then the overall China, MSCI China index, which includes a little bit of everything, is down around 12% year to date. Longer term, though, China has been a profitable place to invest. If we look at the 10-year annualized return for the Chinese stock market overall, the MSCI China index, has been, been about 8% annualized, so less than the U.S. over that time frame, but you know, certainly competitive. And I think most investors would be happy with an 8% annualized return if it was broadly diversified. If we think then about valuations, and the Chinese stock market is not that old, so it reopened again, back in the early 90s. It was closed from really the 50s to the early 90s. And even when the Chinese stock market reopened in those early years, it was mostly state-owned enterprises getting raising capital. And so I have some valuation statistics from the mid-90s, but that's about as far as we go back. And so when we compare to the US, you know, oftentimes the valuations go back to 1928 or earlier, but even more modern period, it's certainly longer than just going back to the mid-90s. But if we look at, for example, the Schiller price-to-earnings ratio, which is the PE, or price-to-earnings of stocks, but using the average earnings over the past decade. Right now, China's at 13.6. Its average going back to 2006 is about 16.3. So the Chinese stock market is, is around a half standard deviation cheaper than its longer term average. But that's looking at 10 years worth of earnings. And to put that into comparison, the US Schiller PE is at 37, 1.8 standard deviations above its average. So the US 
is clearly an expensive market. China is less expensive. But if we look at some other valuation metrics, just looking at the dividend yield for Chinese stocks right now, it's 1.7%. Going back to 1995, the average is 2.4%. So the Chinese stocks are, are more expensive on a dividend basis, on a cash flow yield basis. Chinese stocks are at 7.4%. The longer term average is 11.5%. So by that measure, and with these yields, the higher the yield, the more attractive the valuation. Even on an earnings yield basis, you know, the Chinese stock is, stock market is not, it's not cheap. And I think we've seen periods where this Chinese stock market has been much, much cheaper. So earnings yield for Chinese stocks, which is the inverse of the PE ratio, and I like to look at valuations on a yield basis, just because then we can compare it to interest rates and what those are doing. So at a 6.9% earnings yield, Chinese stocks, the longer term average is about 7.5%, going back to 1995. So it, it's not cheap. It's still more expensive than average. If we look at a period like from 2012 to 2018, the Chinese stock market was much cheaper with an earnings yield of double digits. And so putting it in a longer term perspective, even with the sell-off year to date in Chinese stocks, they're not cheap. They're not incredibly expensive like you see in the US and some other countries, but they're not a bargain by any means. So if we look at the US stock market, you know, you mentioned like the Shiloh PE with us 37, you know, it looks really, really expensive. And then you have other people arguing that they're supposed to be very expensive because the interest rate is just so, so low. So how does that work with China? Like whenever you say it's not that cheap, you said it was like half standard deviation, cheaper. Perhaps you can first talk about like, what do we really mean when we talk, oh, it's like 1.8 standard deviation or half standard deviation. What does that mean? But also like, how does that relate to the interest rate level in China? Well, by standard deviation, it's a statistical measure. And so you might have heard of three sigma or two sigma. So three sigma is really a shorthand for three standard deviations. So something that is far away from its expected or its average, the wider that standard deviation. And so in the case of the US stock market, 1.8 standard deviations for the Schiller PE, that's an extreme. Only a certain percentage, you know, typically for two standard deviations, only about 5% of the observations would be more expensive than that. If we look at earnings yield, the Chinese stock market relative to the bond yield, so the 10-year government bond yield in China is about 2.9% right now. That earnings yield for stocks is 6.9. And so that difference is 4%. If we look at a comparable for the US stock market, its earnings yield is 3.8%. The 10-year treasury is at 1.5%. And so the difference is 2.3%. And so, yes, the US stock market can justify higher valuations, but not a PE of 25 to 35 based on interest rate. You can argue, okay, the US has more tech companies. So maybe you know, on a sector-adjusted basis, it should have a higher valuation. But even when you do the sector analysis, the US stock market is just, it's expensive. And all that means as an investor is, like, it doesn't mean don't you know, sell all US stocks. It just means your expected return for the US stock market is going to be lower. 
And, you know, maybe it'll do better. But one of the things that I'm always looking at is what are the drivers of those returns? It comes from the dividend yield, the income. It comes from the earnings growth. And it comes from the change in valuations over time. And it's hard to argue that with the extreme valuation of the U.S. stock market, that we can suggest that they're going to get even more expensive and that's going to drive return. Because what has allowed the U.S. stock market to outperform the Chinese stock market over the past decade is the earnings or the, the valuations have gotten much more expensive for the U.S. stock market. And that has allowed for greater price appreciation. If we assume the U.S. stock market is going to get cheaper and let's say fall P.E. by 10 points, then that brings the U.S. stock market down to sort of low single digit returns over the next decade. And so as an allocator, and we're all allocators, we kind of have to weigh these different markets. What are the risks and the rewards? And from a purely valuation standpoint, China is more attractively priced in the U.S. It's just that there's also a lot of other uncertainties with the Chinese market that I'm sure we'll discuss in this episode. You're definitely right. There are so many red flags and it seems like all over the news, all you hear are bad stuff come out of China. But before we get to that, David, I would like to take the contrarian view, if we can call it that. And, and let's talk about the bull case because you have several prominent investors, including China Munger, who have been very vocal about the attractiveness of Chinese equities. So before we get to all the bad stuff, why are some people really bull on Chinese equities? Well, one thing they look at is they, they see that the Chinese economy is huge. So billions of people live in China. And they see that the Chinese stock market only makes up about 4% of the overall stock market globally based on market capitalization. But the Chinese economy is 17%. So they just look at those numbers and say, well, this is out of whack. We have the US comprising 22% of the global economy, but is 60% of the global stock market from a capitalization standpoint. And I was I started as an institutional advisor back in the mid-90s, and this was right after Japan was a, a significant portion, 40% of the global stock market on a capitalization basis, which is capitalization being size-weighted basis, was Japan. Japan today is 6% of the global stock market which means it isn't inevitable that the U.S. stays at 60% of the global stock market. If the earnings fall off, if other countries do better, you can see that weighting go down. And there is a disconnect right now between the size of the U.S. economy, 22% of the world GDP, and 60% of the global stock market. And, and that's a reflective of how expensive U.S. stocks are. Now, if we look at economic growth on a per-person basis, per capita, the U.S. is one of the largest in the world at, at $63,000 per person. But China, per capita GDP is only $10,429. So much less. So even though there's a lot of Chinese citizens, but the amount of wealth or income or output they're creating per person is much less. And so a bullish case for China is that as the companies, as individuals become more productive, are able to produce more wealth per person, that will flow into higher corporate profits, a bigger market capitalization, because that's what happened. When we look at, 
for example, Mexico versus U.S. I remember being in, we were vacationing in Mexico or spending a couple months there. And I was talking to a security guard on the beach. And, and his question is, why is Mexico so much poorer than the U.S.? And you look at the reason why. And he, he was seriously trying to understand, like, who's taking the money? Was like, is the boss taking the money or what's going on? You look at it, it's productivity. It's per capita GDP. When you look at how farmers in Mexico, how mechanized it is, it's much less. And countries such as Denmark, the US that have higher productivity, they're able to produce more, which means an accountant in Denmark makes much more than an accountant in Mexico, even though the job function is probably very similar. But there's a spillover effect. If you have a very highly productive tech sector, they pay everybody more money. So it's that per capita GDP, that growth, the potential for China there is what makes it very bullish if they can increase the productivity. One of the challenges that we'll discuss is the government's pushing back and doing things to actually potentially reduce productivity of some very, very successful Chinese companies, such as Alibaba that you alluded to. And I think that would be a nice segue into the other side of the coin. You know, We will be talking specifically about Alibaba and Evergrande, but before we talk about that crackdown on everything that has happened, we also hear like there's a general Chinese bear case, like even before like all the skeletons have been falling out of the closets here, or the well, I guess it's over a year now, if you count it from the very beginning. But David, what is your bear case for China? Well, we'll certainly talk about the regulatory crackdown and the uncertainty of that. The other more bearish case, and I'm I'm not a Chinese bear. I'm sort of agnostic. I'm looking at the data. I see some uncertainty. I don't see a inexpensive stock market in China that can sort of mitigate some of the risk we're seeing. So I'm sort of just waiting and seeing. But one of the things that you're seeing in China is the population growth is slowing for many for decades, China had sort of a, a one-child policy. Now they're encouraging more children, but as in many countries, Chinese parents aren't overly excited. They worry about the expense of having more children. And so one of the things that I look at longer term that can influence the stock market, certainly influence this economic growth, there's many other things that influence it, but certainly the working age population are what drives economic growth long-term is the number of workers and how productive those workers are. And so if you have a country where the working age population is increasing as a percent of the overall population, then that's a tailwind for economic growth. What we see in China, if we just look at the working age population, sort of ages 15 to 64, right now it's about 68% of the population. By 2050, it'll be down to about 60%. So the working age population as a percent of the total is actually shrinking. It's very similar to what you see in Europe, Germany, Poland, Switzerland, China. They all have shrinking working populations as a percent of the whole. Whereas there's other areas where the population is growing. Even the US should see about a five percentage point increase in the working age population over the next 30 years. But then you start looking at a country like India, which I am significantly overweight. Its working population will increase about 15 points over the next 40 years. And then, then you have sort of the frontier markets, you know, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, where you have significant 
working age population growth. But what remains uncertain is a lot of the the framework for capitalism in those countries that can impede things. But just purely on a population basis, China's population growth is shrinking for working age individuals, and that comes somewhat of a headwind. Now, they still have this opportunity to become way, way more productive. And so you got both of those sides. You got the population growth as a headwind, but you have potential productivity as a tailwind. And then the other major bearish thing is just all the uncertainty is will China allow companies to innovate and be productive or will they try to clamp down on areas that they feel like is negative to the populace? Because the Communist Party, their biggest fear is social uprising. So they do everything they can to try to just in some ways smooth out the volatility, the volatility of the citizenry. And what we certainly have learned over decades as investors is when you try to clamp down on volatility, usually there's some type of unintended consequences. And China has been incredibly successful at balancing, allowing for innovation, while also trying to keep social cohesion. But now some of the things they're doing, even just stuff they've done over the past few months is incredible in, let's just say, the crackdown on trying to tell production companies, media companies, like, don't show this person anymore because we don't like how they think or to sort of ostracize famous people. And, and just sort of this micromanaging thing. This is a country of billions of people, yet you have a government micromanaging certain things from a, a social perspective that you can do this, you can't do that. And that can weigh on people over time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. 
Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. So, David, let's let's uh, stay in the uh, doom and gloomy world because it's uh, <laughs> it's about to get worse here. Let's talk about the debt situation in China. So you have private non-financial uh, sector debt of 222% of GDP in China. And let's compare that to the US, 164% in the US. And that's already very high. It's not, I don't know if the right benchmark is necessarily the US because that's also high. So we're really looking at this at a different level. We can also look at specific companies. I know you're specifically looking into Huarong, which was a company that was set up by China to purchase bank loans, and it doesn't look like it's in good shape. Another company that's really like, it's all over the news here, that's Evergrande. And uh, we're recording this 27th of September. And this goes out here uh, later this week. So, so could you talk to us about the debt situation, perhaps specifically about those two companies? And, and what are the implications for investors interested in investing in Chinese equities? Well, first off, the debt. It is true that China's Private sector debt as a percent of GDP is is some of the highest in the world. Back in 2010, it was about 120% of GDP. Now it's over 200% of GDP, as you mentioned. But we also have to keep in mind that the Chinese economy per capita GDP of $10,000. So if that debt is used productively to invest in infrastructure, to invest in technology, things that will allow the Chinese workers to produce more, then that debt is serviceable. So, it, you know, the overall debt isn't so much a concern as long as it's being productively used. And it's just like in our own lives. If we go out and borrow and invest in our human capital by taking out a student loan, that that is can be very good debt. If we're taking out a bunch of debt to go on vacation or buying other consumption items, then that's not great debt because it's not a productive use of taking that potential future earnings and using them in the present. So that's one of the things to consider. The other is that China, Communist Party, they control the banks. And so Horong is a great example. So this was a company set up by the Chinese government. There's reports it was buying 30 to 40% the bad loans of Chinese banks. And I remember back earlier in my career, we would research and recommend hedge funds. So I would often go to New York and meet with hedge funds and just get their thoughts and get their ideas. And there was one Chinese-focused hedge fund or Asian-focused hedge fund, and he was pounding the table. I mentioned people are so worried about this debt situation and they don't realize that the Chinese government controls the banks. And this is a great example. So they set up this company, 
along. They're buying all these bad loans, and then the bad loans go bad. And what does the Chinese government do? They basically order state-owned enterprises, and this was just in August 2021, to bail out the company. And so the state-owned enterprises have stepped up and basically kicked the can down the road, which is what you often see when you have a debt crisis. In the case of Evergrande, they are the largest property developer in China. They operate in over 250 cities. They're building houses. Chinese citizens are putting deposits with Evergrande to buy these houses. But China, the construction market, the housing market is much larger as a percentage of the economy than in other countries. And China government a year ago, regulators wanted to clamp down on the property developers because China's had great economic growth, but the economic growth has come from infrastructure spending. It's come from construction. It isn't driven by the consumer. And one of the things that China has to do is rebalance their economy so it's more consumer driven, just like the US is, because that's what successful developed economies have done. They become more consumer driven. Well, China is not. The household savings rate in China is 31%. In the US, it's 14% because of all the stimulus, but typically it's been sort of 5 to 8%. So you have Chinese citizens that are saving 31% of their income, mostly because there isn't a big social safety net. And it's just how that economy is. And so what China did a year ago is they passed something called the three red lines, basically a mandate to reduce the amount of leverage in the property development sector. And so Evergrande has spent a year trying to reduce its debt. And it actually has been able to reduce its debt. But when you're a debt-fueled company, it takes a lot of effort to reduce that debt. And now some of that debt is actually at risk because they're not been able to sell as many houses. And you got this pressure from the government. And it appears that Evergrande will need to be restructured. So then it's a question, will this be a restructuring like Harong, where the state-owned enterprises will step in, or will there'll be aspects that will be allowed to fail? And, and one, at least indications are, and what's different from Evergrande is they have $21 billion of foreign debt, so not denominated in the Chinese currency. But a big portion of their debt are these housing deposits. And again, China, they want social cohesion. The Chinese citizens, if they get ticked off, they do, they don't necessarily rebel, but they do protest in their own way. And so more than likely, these housing deposits that the Chinese have put, deposits for new houses will be refunded. Potentially foreign owners of the bonds will lose money. But China would like a gentle landing for Evergrande. But the risk is it isn't, that there is a contagion, there's fear. And we've seen this in the past, but oftentimes then, oh, just like in the US, and the central bank steps in, provides the liquidity, they cut interest rates, they do everything to sort of calm things down so the fear is lessened. And that's probably what will happen here, but we'll see. We do have a volatile Chinese market, but the debt is manageable, again, is, is the bottom line, if it's used in productive ways and it's used in a way that eventually the Chinese economy rebalances to be more consumer focused. I think it's important to understand how significant the real estate market is in China. And you could, of course, argue that, you know, show me a country where it's 
it's not significant, but it truly is. You know, you have like families in the states. You know, they rely on real estate as savings, even to a larger extent in China. Like that's how you are supposed to save up. That's how it's been done for generations. Twenty percent of economic activity in China is real estate. So you know, from builders, supplier of paint, and so on and so forth. So it's really important to understand that part. And also, like you mentioned, David, a lot of those deposits are already made. So you have that system to some extent, but not for the same lead time in the West. Specifically for Evergrande's 1.4 million private homes that's already been paid for, and there's just nowhere to be found. And so I can't help but wondering, like this is a company, the most indebted property company in the world, more than 300 billion dollars in liabilities. Do you think there's any probability that Evergrande collapsing would lead to a stock market crash in China or even spread? Well, it's possible, but. You know, it could be a catalyst, but we don't know. When you see the pattern in China in the past, because people talk about well, this is their Lehman moment. This is where the Chinese government lets a too big to fail company fail. And yeah, I don't see China doing that. And I don't have any insight, obviously, but just based on their pattern, they might let the foreign bonds default. They will more than likely not, you know, will return those housing deposits. But one of the problems with companies like Evergrande and other property developers is that we're at a tailwind, 25 years growth in the housing market. You're not seeing that the population isn't growing like it was. So one of the things, you know, people talk about the housing market in the US, that it's in a bubble. Well, there's a shortage of housing in the US. If you look at the household formations every year, there's about a three million shortfall of dwelling units in the US. And the home construction companies, the home builders are not houses because that's what drives housing market. It's household formations. It's people getting married, forming a house or partnering and wanting to establish a household away from their parents. If you look at China, there were 31% fewer marriages in 2019 in China than there was in 2013. So you don't have the same level of household formation. We already saw some data showing the working age population is percent of the total. So you don't have, not a bubble, but the housing growth. So it's slowing. And maybe that's why the Chinese government was saying, property developers, you need to reduce your leverage because we see where the demographics are going. But you know, overall, again, the Chinese government doesn't want chaos. They want the social cohesion. And they have stepped in to the stock market before and provided liquidity and other things. Potentially that will happen here. So we'll see. But it's not systematically like Lehman was that led to that contagion because that, that was much more global. The Chinese housing market is much more just centered in China. There's less interconnectedness around the world that, like you saw with the housing crash and the Lehman default back in. 2008 in the US. On top of all of this, you know, for some period of time now, there's been talks about the US potentially delisting Chinese companies. And so what happens to us if we say bought stock in Alibaba or perhaps another company through an ADR bought on US exchanges, but in Chinese companies? Well, there's two things going on. So when we talk about delisting companies back in November 2020, the Trump administration issued an executive order basically saying that Chinese companies 
that are listed in the U.S. that have ties to the Chinese military will be delisted. And they came out in January 2021 and said there were 31 companies, some of them like China Telecom, for example, some very large companies that were delisted. So you can no longer buy them on New York Stock Exchange or other U.S. exchanges. That's different from what we're seeing with Alibaba and these other companies that also trade as ADRs in the U.S. China, when they reopened their stock market, there were certain sectors that they restricted foreign ownership of the companies. And the tech sector was one of those sectors. But this is back in the early to mid-2000s. Companies, private companies, tech companies were starved for capital. They wanted to raise capital. And they used an obscure method that had been used in the past. Enron used the same method. It's called a variable interest entity or a VIE. And what it is, is a company will raise money overseas, such as the Cayman Islands, and then they'll issue stock in, let's say, the U.S., listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So they'll form the company in the Cayman Islands, they'll list the stock, raise capital in the U.S., but the actual intellectual property, the operations of the company is based in China, but that company is not owned by the Cayman Island entity. It's not owned by the registered security, the stock in the U.S. It's owned by individuals, often founders of the companies in China, in their name. All that exists is a contractual agreement between the offshore entity and the individuals in China that they'll pass on the earnings, they'll pass on revenue. And FASB, the U.S. accounting body, has ruled that you know, they're close enough that they can consolidate the financials. But in reality, legally, they don't have any standing in China. And we saw this in July. One of the big venture-backed industries in China was online tutoring, where billions of dollars were raised. And they used this structure. They raised money overseas. They listed in the US as VIEs. And China came out in July again with the idea of social cohesion because you have millions and millions of students taking these college entrance exams. It's extremely competitive. Parents are paying for tutors, online tutors, online tutoring classes. So this is a big billion dollar industry. And China comes out and says, this industry will go nonprofit and we will not allow companies to raise online tutor companies to raise money through VIE or raise any money at all because you're no longer a for-profit company. And what happened was those VIEs, those ADRs, these online tutoring companies trading in the US, they fell 90% immediately because they don't have a legal means because they set up these VIEs really to skirt the rules, to avoid these foreign restrictions. And so that they're still listed. You can still buy the company. So they haven't been delisted. It's just that it's not worth anything because the actual company itself, the operations are in China, and now they're not even for profit. And so one of the fears is that China will crack down on more of these VIEs because that's how Alibaba and these other tech companies are set up. They're VIEs. The operations in China are owned by individuals. They're not owned by the company itself. And China has come out this summer and told Tencent and told Alibaba that they shouldn't focus exclusively on profits anymore, that they have other missions in terms of just keeping the social cohesion, 
making sure that, you know, help with income inequality within China and other things rather than a pure focus on profit. And as a result, you've seen some big sell-offs in Alibaba and some of these other tech companies because of the uncertainty. They haven't said you can't be a VIE anymore, but certainly China has cracked down on these companies. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think that's a good segue because let's specifically talk about everything that's happening in the tech sector. I think for here in the West, or perhaps it was primarily me, like being a shareholder in Alibaba, which I was at the time, I was very much looking forward to this year. It was November 2020, and you had this IPO of M Financials. This is an affiliate company of Alibaba, and among its many assets, they have China's largest digital payment platform, Alipay. This is a massive, massive system, more than a billion users, 80 million merchants. And so just a few days before, it was just like, no, it's not going to happen. And the world was like, what? Like, what is going on? And so could you please, David, walk us through what happened back then and then to today? Like, what is happening in the tax sector from an investing and and regulatory uh, perspective? Well, first, Alibaba, for example, I think you had discussed it back in 2019. No, it was a good deal, $165 per share for the ADR. It got up to $317 in October 2020. But then Jack Ma and the Ant Group was going to do their IPO. And you're right, the Chinese government said, no, you're not. And this was sort of the first pushback against some of these tech companies, which control a large part of the financial system. And Alipay is very commonly used as a payment mechanism. Alipay and Ant had loan products that you could borrow money. And one of the struggles in China right now is who is going to control the financial system. And if you have what are known as shadow banks, shadow banks are non-traditional banks that you know perform banking-like function. And Alibaba is an example of that, or these pay apps, or the ability to borrow from another company. You know, Apple Pay is a, is a shadow bank, effectively. And so that was the first push. And then, so they scrapped the IPO. And then just this month or last month, China came out with Alibaba and Ant and said, you're going to have to split off your loan portion of your app, of the payment app into a separate app. And we are going to be co-owners of your new company and your new app. And we want your data that you have on all these Chinese citizens and their borrowing habits and everything, basically your algorithm that you're using to issue these loans. And so you've seen Alibaba fall 54% since last October. And when, if you look at valuations, Alibaba is cheap. It has been in five years on a price to cash flow basis, price to sales, price to earnings. But you have this huge uncertainty because now you have the government saying you've gotten too powerful and you control too much of the financial system, we want a stake in that. And we're going to force you to do that. And and that's what you've seen. If the Chinese government wants something, just like we've seen in online tutoring, they'll make it happen. There are private schools in the Financial Times report in China that because China didn't like the percent of the populace that was going to private schools instead of public schools, their solution was to tell hundreds of private schools around the country that you're now a public school, you're not profit, and we own you, and didn't give any compensation for that. So that's the kind of thing going on. And it's hard. It's sort of you've got two systems here. You have very 
entrepreneurial companies, innovative companies like Alibaba, Tencent, that were kind of given free reign to innovate. And now they've gotten so powerful and big that China said, no, we can't just focus on profit anymore. And we want a piece of the action because we want to control the data. And you see the same thing in the crypto space. It's like, who controls a legal tender? Who controls the financial system? And that's why these companies have been cracked down. And we don't know how it'll end. So yeah, Alibaba is cheap, but what's going to look like a year or two from now? That's just a good point. It does look cheap, but what are you buying? I think that's the big question. And just for the record, now that we are talking about that, I pitched this back in, I think it was the Q3 mastermind discussion. I am adding to my position now. The price is, is trading 145. So just know all my biases as I continue <laughs> with the rest of this interview. But clearly, the company isn't as valuable as it was some time ago, simply because the outlook has just dramatically changed. And people might be listening to this and they're thinking, well, you know, it's Alipay, you know, it's an app. Like, what's all the fuss about? But it's really such an integrated part of the society that it's really difficult to explain. And I could you come up with this, like, it seems like a silly analogy, or I don't want this to come up as disrespectful whenever I'm saying this, but just to give you an example, like Alipay and, and WePay, WePay that's owned by Tencent, there's such common method of transferring money and fiscal casts are just so non-existent that you have beggars on the street in bigger cities. They have QR codes that are laminated with their ID for WePay and Alipay. And again, I don't want to sound disrespectful as I'm saying this because it's not like meant as entertainment, but it's just to say like, it's so ingrained into society and the Chinese government do not want that control to be in the hands of people like Jack Ma to rival the government. So you mentioned here before that you had several companies, most noticeable Alibaba and Tencent, who have been encouraged to contribute to common prosperity. And let me just put, you know, encouraged in quotation marks. I'm pretty sure it, this is what's going to happen. It wasn't like an opt-in system. And we're talking about fines here of Fidibaba, it's $15.5 billion, Tencent is 7.7. So, and this is for a number of years. I think Fidibaba, it's, it's five years. But what's the intention behind Come Prosperity? And should we as investors look at this as a pure penalty from regulators that are not going to yield any type of return if we invest in, say, Alibaba? Well, the point is to reduce income inequality. And so, to come up with ways, like China, for example, has encouraged firms, wealthy individuals to make charitable contributions. And you've mentioned some of the big dollar amounts. You know, part of this common prosperity is just do things that seems like taking the economy or the country in the way that the Chinese leaders want. For example, a crackdown on online gaming occurred this year. And there has been a crackdown on celebrity fan clubs. There's been a crackdown as they blacklisted actors that have incorrect views on the Chinese government opinion. So basically, anything that appears to be opposite of social cohesion, that isn't what the Chinese government wants. They're offering weekly classes to elementary school students on Xi Jinping thought, like the thought of the Chinese premier. So... You could say these contributions by wealthy companies. However, it's just like taking on debt, right? If it actually does improve society, improves the social cohesion, I suppose that can be helpful. But certainly 
investing those money in productivity enhancing improvements and innovation is going to be better off for shareholders of Alibaba. And now they're not. And so that, you know, I think overall, it's not great for the stock market, but you know, there's a lot more going on in China than just the stock market. And that's why China is trying to make these changes so that things move in the direction that they would like. But oftentimes, and we've seen this in other countries, I was in Cuba in 2017, another notorious communist country with a lot of centralized planning, much, much poorer than China. But just talking to individuals, they want to be entrepreneurial. They want to have their own business. They want to do those things. And it, sometimes it can be very frustrating when they couldn't. And I saw some of that frustration, that at least some that they could express to me. So if the Chinese government pushes back too much, you could also see frustration from citizens where, well, we actually want more choice. That doesn't seem to be the case yet. But if, let's say, a contagion happens or there's a crisis, the Chinese citizens, they do protest. I mean, they get on, on Weibo and other, they will protest. You know, any controlling government's biggest fear is to lose the faith of their citizens. And then and China doesn't want that. And they fear that. And one way they react to that is to try to put down anybody that seems like they're getting too popular. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, Plus, available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. 
Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. David, I remember whenever I was looking at big tech some years ago, at the time I was confident that China would have a leg up over the West in the AI race because the Chinese companies were allowed to collect more data simply because you know data is your your commodity, your raw material. So they had a leg up compared to the States. And you could even say that the US have the same thing with Europe where you're not allowed to collect as much data. So now it's become a bit more complex for me to analyze because Whereas you are still allowed to collect a lot of data in China that you can't necessarily do in the West, the Chinese government has said that there needs to be a market for data. It can't just be for that specific companies. It's like economists traditionally have looked at four factors of production, land, labor, capital, and then entrepreneurship. But now it seems like China wants to add a fifth factor of production, which is data. And you need a market, otherwise it can't be a factor of production. So I'm not sure what to read into this. It could look like the individual company might be more challenged, but perhaps Chinese companies overall would still have a leg up. I'm not really sure how to read the situation. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I still think we're in the early days of AI. There is so much more training that needs to be done, so much more data that we need to actually have things produced based on AI. And so, I mean, we've seen it some, certainly the loan products, it can be AI-based, figure out who's going to default or not. But I think where we are in the early days of the AI revolution, and we'll see whether you know, the Chinese way of going about it, where maybe it is more common data, or the US, where you actually you are seeing, even in the US, pushback on data collection with Apple's, some of their privacy and enhancements and, and how that, that all is going to work you know, in their battle with Facebook. It's fascinating to watch, but I still think we're in the early days to see how it'll evolve, to, to see if there's actually even more effective uses for AI that actually enhances the lives, you know, not just the profits of companies, but actually enhances the lives of individuals. In 2002, the United States Secretary of Defense, Don Rumsfeld, famously said, there are no knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. So listener, please stay with me here. As in going through this. So by definition, we do not know the unknown unknowns. But what are the known knowns and the known unknowns when investing in China? 
Well, the known knowns is that you can't trust the data coming out of China, the official economic data, for example. And you know, one of the things that I do is uh, you know, for my research service, I subscribe to Capital Economics, and they do a Chinese proxy. So they're basically, if you're an economist in the U.S., you can get data issued by the U.S. to know how you know if GDP. It's always an estimate, but you know it's as accurate as it could be. In China, when the official GDP number is released, it's massaged. Now, generally, the trend is probably fairly accurate, but any given year or quarter, maybe not so. And so, you actually, as an economist, you actually have to use other data sources to kind of estimate what the official numbers are and the directions. And that's always a challenge. Investing in a country where you can't even trust the economic data makes it very, very difficult to do. And even the entire structure. This VIE structure, I, I suspect most people have no idea if they're investing in Alibaba that this is a VIE structure. And technically, the ADR that trades in New York doesn't own anything, that it doesn't have a contractual right to property and physical property or intellectual property in China. It doesn't exist. And if the Chinese government just said to Alibaba, you will be a not for profit. And you no longer can raise capital via VIE, just like they did for the online tutoring company. Then Alibaba is going to go from $150 per share down to, to 10 quickly. And that's the risk of investing in China. So we talk about the unknowns. We don't know ultimately what the Chinese government is going to do. You just don't have the same rule of law. It's not the same rules at all that you can get that at least the confidence that you can in other countries. Now, you know, all countries pass legislations, but you can see the process playing out and then can make your adjustments along the way. With China, you don't see it. It's just boom. Online tutoring companies are not for profit. Stock falls 90%. And that's the biggest risk of investing in China. It's that unknown and sort of the whimsy that just things come out of the blue, the ant IPO out of the blue. Two days before, no, you're not going to do an IPO. And that makes it very, very difficult to invest, which is one reason why the Chinese stock market should be less expensive than the US stock market. I would argue that the Chinese stock market probably should be even cheaper than it is now, you know, closer to the valuations we saw in 2012 to 2014, as opposed to where they're at currently. I think you bring up a great point. Like, you really need to be aware of the risk, and you have so many bureaucrats right now in China assuring foreign investors that no, like we're not going to see more crackdowns, you're not going to see bad stuff happening. And it just seems like that trust, if there ever was one that has been eroded, like it's not, I think everyone expects something more bad to happen. And perhaps that can eat into your, your margin of safety. But David, a known unknown for me, and I'm shifting gears here a bit, but I can't help but ask now that you joined here on the show. Because a known unknown for me is China's new digital currency. So this was something that was unveiled back in 2019. And this digital currency began its trial in April 2020 and has slowly been rolled out into in the major cities. So this cyber one stands to give Beijing power to track spending in real time. Plus, it's also money that isn't linked to a dollar-dominated global financial system. I'm not sure what to make of this. Do you have any thoughts on on the currency itself, but also whether or not it has any implications for us as investors. 
First, we have to step back and think about the types of money that there are. For example, China, the US, there's actual currency, the, the bills, the coins, they are liabilities of the central bank. So the US, the US dollar is a Federal Reserve note, and you know, we can use it, we can buy things with it. But most currency is actually created by the banking system as they make loans. So in the US, 90% digital currency, including it's private, it's created by the banking system. Now it's still, it's called a dollar, but it's actually a demand deposit against the private banking system. The third type of currency is what are known as central bank reserves. So the only people that can access that right now is the private banking system. So the Chinese banks, they'll have some reserves. Basically, they have an account at the, the PBOC, the People's Bank of China. The US banks have accounts at the Federal Reserve. And as part of QE and other things, they have these reserves, which is basically they are liabilities of the central bank, just like the currency is a liability. The bills and notes are a liability of the central bank. There's reserves are liabilities of the central bank. What individuals don't have in China, nor in the US and other countries is we don't have access to those central bank reserves. We just get these notes, the coins and bills. And what a central bank digital currency will do, it will allow individuals and businesses to have access to central bank currency, central banks that have the power to create as much currency as they want. So you don't have to worry about if you have a liability at a bank or you have a deposit at a bank, we need government insurance to protect against that bank going bankrupt. If you invest in BlockFi and put money at a BlockFi cryptocurrency lending, like there is no insurance there, which is why they have to pay 8% interest. But we don't have access to central bank reserves, that base level of currency, other than just holding notes and coins. We don't digitally get to hold central bank currency. And what a central bank digital currency like China's central banks experimenting with is exactly that. The ability to have access to a digital version of the yuan or a digital version of the dollar that's not actually a liability of a private banking system. It's a liability of the central bank. And will we be able to to make payments and have the payments clear through the central bank. We don't know how it'll be structured. Will we have an account at the central bank that we can earn interest on our central bank digital currency? So we're very much in the early stages, but China is leading the way because there is Alipay. You have this huge tech companies controlling a big portion of spending and transactions, and they have the data. And China wants to push back against that. They would want to control who owns the currency, who controls the currency. And part of that solution is the central bank digital currency. And part of the solution is telling, and this just came out last week, where the People's Bank of China said it's illegal to transact and own in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and others. And you've seen Bitcoin sell off. And that's part of this whole battle is who's going to control currency that is being used. And China wants control of their currency. They don't want some tech company. They don't want a private bank sector controlling it. They want the data and they want the control and they're going to issue 
more than likely a central bank digital currency to facilitate that. Now, will people use it? Because they're used to, as you point out, they're used to using Alipay and these other payment apps. So one of the questions is, what actions will the Chinese government take to discourage the use of Alipay and to use the central bank digital currency? And will they go as far as to say Alipay is now not legal and you can no longer use that? You have to use the central bank digital currency. And that's one of the, like I said, that would be a known unknown. We don't know. Good point. And one thing that, that they can do with this miracle and they have is to give people free money just to get in the hands of people and just for them to get started. It's an interesting experience, what's happening right now. But David, it's been really great talking about China, you know, a beer case, a bull case. So let me see if I can sum that up here in my final question for you. How should investors think about whether they should invest in China? And if the answer is yes, could you talk to us about position sizing, which considerations to make? The simplest way to invest in China is to own a global stock market ETF, such as Vanguard Total Global Stock Market ETF, VT. It's about 4% China. In that case, you know, if things work out in China, China will become a bigger percent of the global stock market. And investors will participate in that. And that's one way that I participate. If you actually want to invest in emerging markets directly, developing markets, if you buy something like the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF, VWO, in that case, it's a pretty big bet. It's a 40% bet in China. And the approach that I've taken is I like emerging markets. I like the lower valuations of emerging markets relative to the US. So I have exposure, for example, to an ETF like the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets High Dividend ETF, where because it's focusing on higher dividend yielding stocks, its weight in China is only about 20%. And so there, there are ETFs out there that you know, have an allocation to China, but it's not a big weight. And I find ETF asset class investing, I just prefer that over buying individual stocks. I think people can buy individual stocks if you like doing the research. I just, I've spent so many years researching hedge funds and money managers looking at their investment process, I just realized I don't have an informational edge. I don't know what's going to go on with Alibaba. I can look at drivers' economies. I can look at valuations of economies and stock markets and take positions that way. And so I tend to, for example, I, I have a big overweight in India. Because if I look at the working age population growth expectation for India, it's one of the, the highest growth rates in the world and does seem to be a little more receptive to capitalism than you're seeing in China right now. India stock market's a lot more expensive than China. So I've also used some active funds for you know active managers that are on the ground in India trying to figure this thing out. So I don't, I don't think there's one way to do it. I think sometimes a passive approach can be helpful. I think using an active fund to let them figure out which Chinese company or which India company to buy. I think individuals can do their own research too, if they like to do that and they find like they have an informational edge to add value. So those are kind of the ways to do it, passive, active, or just kind of go on your own and pick your own company. Wow, David, thank you so much for joining us here on, on the show. You know, with everything that's been going on, it's just so great to have a chance to speak to you and for you to simplify for all of us, like what is going on in China right now. David, whenever people ask me which podcast to listen to, your podcast is, is one of them that I mentioned. So I want to just say here to the audience, go check out Money for the Rest of Us. It's, it's an amazing podcast. 
I would like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience more about your resources, where they can find you, and, and more information about you. The podcast is called Money for the Rest of Us. I've been doing it for almost eight years now. Uh, there's also a YouTube channel, also Money for the Rest of Us. On the website at moneyfortherestofus.com, there's some free investment guides so people can learn about different asset classes, and we're always updating those. So there's, there's different ways that you can sample some of the content that we produce on our site and podcast, and, and I welcome you to check it out at moneyfortherestofus.com. Fantastic. Well, again, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope we can invite you back one day. I'd love to come back. Thanks. Fantastic. All right. So as we soon letting uh, David go here, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Investors Podcast. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.